Uh, so I'm Aaron Landsman. I'm a um, playwright. I write other things as well. Uh, I teach. I do some directing, and um, I have a kind of multidisciplinary practice that includes theater, uh, socially engaged, long-term practice that get that gets called right now social practice. Um, and I teach part-time at Princeton. Um, I also make work with Princeton students that usually involves collaboration with humanities professors. Um, I'm based in New York City, and I'm originally from the Midwest. Hi, um, I'm Mallory Catlett. Um, I'm a, a director primarily. Well, I, I, I create and direct pieces um, of performance, basically, across disciplines is usually what I say. Um, um, I uh, I do some freelancing. Um, I'm a co-artistic director of Mabu Minds in New York City, and I also have my own company called Restless um, NYC Productions, where I do mostly when I'm generating work from scratch, that's my own. That's where I, I do that. Um, yeah, I mean, I work really across disciplines from installation to music theater to opera to the occasional play if Aaron <laughs> writes something, but I don't do too many plays anymore. Um, uh, yeah, and I teach occasionally. Um, when asked, I really like to teach, uh, you know, students making their own work. So I have a process by which I like to mentor students making their own material, whatever that is. Um, so that's kind of my, when I do teach, it's what I like to teach um, mostly. So um, yeah, I, I'm from all over. I might come from a military family all over the States, uh, but I've lived in New York now longer than I lived anywhere else. So that's my story. Cool. Thank you both. And it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, I'm Tom. For the past uh, 12 years, um, I've pursued a career as an applied performance, applied theatre maker and producer. I currently work at Derby Theatre, which is the United Kingdom's leading producing and learning theatre. I work as the community and learning producer, which comprises of many, many, many different roles. And I get the incredible opportunity to work with um, so many different young people and communities, um, whether that's producing participatory projects, uh, delivering, facilitating, directing, um, and, and the superb opportunity to work with incredible colleagues um, and associate artists within the Midlands. So we're here today to talk about your new book, more specifically about your performance, City Council Meeting, and the book itself, The City We Make Together, which is really an exploration of not only your methodology, but also how the piece came together um, and your relationship as makers. So I wonder if, Aaron, you'd like to start off um, and maybe tell us a little bit about how all this project kind of came together, really. Sure. Uh, and yeah, thanks again. Um, we, Mallory and I had known each other in the theater world and specifically in like downtown New York in the early aughts. Um, I had seen Mallory's work. I think she had seen work that I was involved in. I had a kind of concurrent practice as a performer as well as maker. And then in 2003, we were um, part of a group called Theaters Against War that a group of theater artists started that was about engaging as broad a spectrum of the theater community as possible in activities related to um, America's invasion of Iraq. 
um, and the post 9-11 kind of gearing up for war. And Mallory and I both had experience doing site-specific work. So we led a kind of march parade protest uh, in the rain with umbrellas through Midtown Manhattan and the theater district. Concurrently, other artists had as many theaters as possible give curtain speeches. So that was a really, um, that was the beginning of our working relationship. And then since then, uh, Mal directed um, a play that I wrote uh, in uh, this top of a office, an abandoned office building in lower Manhattan. And so, and I had seen her work um, when I started thinking about the city council meeting project because I had seen so many different kinds of projects she had worked on and felt like her imprint was in allowing the best of those projects to really live in front of us as an audience. So that was really exciting because I started this not knowing what it was gonna be, just that I had this story, which I will tell. Um, uh, I was in Portland, Oregon in 2009, working on a different project and got dragged to a local government meeting um, by a friend who worked at the theater. And we met with a, um, a, a commissioner they're called there. And he was interested in supporting our project. And he said, you should stick around for the government meeting. It's gonna be great. And I was like, local government meetings aren't great. They're really boring. Um, and he was like, no, no, this one's about zoning. And I was like, oh, case in point. And so, um, but I went because I felt like it was an obligation because, you know, he was possibly going to support this other project. So I couldn't say no. And I went in and um, part of it was really boring. And that actually really stuck with me because on one hand, I was watching people get prepared to speak. Um, and that felt like, you know, they had all written little scripts because in a U.S. local government meeting, you usually get two to three minutes and then a bell goes off when you want to give testimony as a citizen. Um, and so I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I thought, well, the setup is interesting because you have these power brokers who are facing us. And then you have people testifying to them with their backs to us sort of in the audience. And you have video uh, of everybody mixed live above the council. So it was very like that was very theatrical. And then it was still also really boring, like 45 minutes above endless testimony about zoning. And then at one point, um, a guy got up and uh, the council seemed to know him. There was a lot of familiarity and he was dressed in a lot of beige and like a sport coat and shoes and slacks. And he had glasses. He was about 60 years old um, and he was real friendly. And then in the middle of his testimony, he dumped a bag of trash on the table in front of the council. And it was like, heroin works, use condoms, dirty diapers. And he said, I pick these up in the kids zone every day. So what are you all gonna do to clean up the city? And a council member said, uh, well, you just created a public health hazard and now we have to clear the room. And then the guy without missing a beat, like turned with a flourish to the rest of the audience and said, well, you just made my point better than I ever could have. And I was like, that's the best theater I've seen in a long time. And then the other thing that happened was that I drove from there to a workshop I had to teach in Montana. And so I drove across the Western US listening to talk radio and the talk radio was all about all the national hot button issues. I, I did like linger on a couple of right wing stations and they were, you know, Obama was in his third month and there was a sense of like the polarization and the racism of that moment was already really setting in on a national level. But I had just seen this local government meeting where it felt like people really got to face off against adversaries and use kind of performative tactics that I recognized to um, make something actually happen. Like this guy, Pete Colt, who was his name, he was at a lot of government meetings and he had a lot of like issues that he cared about. And he often was about centering neglected neighborhoods and how they are kept up at the city. And he, you know, I looked back more recently on 
whether he was successful or not, because someone asked. And I don't know about that particular issue, but he did actually work with the city in that kind of adversarial role to clean up certain neighborhoods. So um, I found that really inspiring. And that's where the project began. How exciting. So Mallory, how how did you then get involved? How did this project then um, make its way over to you? Well, I mean, I... I'm always up for a challenge, you know, I mean, I, I love, I mean, I started as an artist, as a dancer. And so my relationship to, to sort of like people moving and to music and all that comes from those things. And I think in the theater, I love to kind of bring conventions of other art forms like into the theatrical space or when I, I adapt a lot of like literature or te- text from outside. So I'm always really interested in how, like how to bring things into like from outside of that, the repertoire into a theatrical space and how, as, and opposed to just like sort of putting it into the mill and churning it out to be like a play, actually use that to kind of expand what we think of as performance or what we think of as, as theater. So, so like when Aaron told me about this project, I was like, yeah, you know what I mean? Cause I, I mean, in so many ways, we, we knew we had like a love of like working outside of theatrical spaces. And, and that was obviously going to be a big deal about, you know, making something that could go to a place and wouldn't always be a theater. Um, so yeah, that was really interesting. And also at the time I was just having, and I have an ongoing, you know, fight with representation, you know, as, a, and as a theater maker, that's very, a weird, <laughs> a weird thing. It, yeah, like it, that, that's the aspect of theater that I'm always like rubbing up against. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about just pure communication, like, um, and so it was really interesting project to me because if it was going to be, because one of the first decisions we made was that the, if it's about participation, our question was about like, why do people participate or not within this setting, then we should try to make a structure where the audience actually performs the piece. So because that was going to be, we made that decision. It was like, and probably because I was thinking about this, it's like, I wanted to make something that actually wouldn't work unless we could clearly communicate to the audience. Right. And that the whole metric of like making would be like, well, this didn't work. So our communication has to shift. Right. So it was always a question of not about verisimilitude, even though if you were to see the piece, you would think like, Oh, this is documentary theater, blah, blah, blah. Right. But that was never our metric. Right. It wasn't like, Oh, we have to convince this audience that this is real it was like it is real it's transcripts we were like fine you know that whatever it was more like how do we actually get people to participate in the moment make them feel like they can do it make them think about why they want to do it or why they decided not to do it or i'm gonna reflect and sit in judgment like all these kinds of things that happen to you when you go to a city council meeting so i was really like stoked because i thought oh i can really think about um what it means to really communicate with an audience and so that was really um that was exciting to me and I was like okay yeah because it was like what I what I wanted to be thinking about at the time and I think in the book especially the first quarter where 
you really begin to explain and examine the idea of what democracy is and how to go about setting up a democratic space for people and the ongoing the ongoing idea of responsibility not being able to easily pass the blame or the book but instead considering the idea that if we're not all equal and we don't all acknowledge our equality and the weight that we all share within this space then we actually can't ever get to a point where we acknowledge and accept that we equally might get something wrong just as many times as we all might get it right and I think that that provocation in itself to be able to to share that with people or suggest that to people first of all it's universal and I think it transcends the council room meeting completely you know even in terms of how we form our communities how we form our social groups those friendships and relationships are built upon an agreed understanding well successful relationships and friendships are built upon an agreed understanding that if I get something wrong or you get something wrong that's okay because we also each get things wrong and that that somehow generates a not only a sense of play but also manifests a respect as well um so Aaron, when you when you started to pull this project together, at the time that you had the idea, I want to create a piece of work that explores democratic spaces and practices. I want to create a piece that explores this subgenre of society where the same people come back every single week with new problems or the same problems or like what was your what was your kind of premise to begin with? your pitch for making a show well there are a couple um and i actually feel i i liked you know your your what you just said about kind of how we form communities based on the idea of our own possible fallibility and that that involves and genders or involves a level of trust i think that's really a lovely way to frame this conversation or even the idea of like that being part of a governmental agreement between citizens and people who lead that's powerful because i don't think that goes plays in a lot um to how we think about how we arrange ourselves as citizens and elected officials so the back background for me has to do with really like there's a kind of character in the world that i really gravitate toward as, as a writer which is the kind of or misfits in cities, honestly, like the people that you might pass by or be like, oh, I'm definitely gonna pass by that person. Um, but I actually find that public spaces are where people who are denied a voice um, in other forms of discourse are allowed to speak. And, uh, uh, you know, so I, I love libraries. I'm really interested in institutional buildings and how they both um, coerce people into certain kinds of behavior but they also are spaces that are not controlled by advertising, for instance, at least some of them still. Um, and so that they allow people who want to share something about themselves that's not of the norm to share it. Um, and so public spaces and people who need access to a voice coalesced really in this council meeting. And then, in, you know, Mallory and I both went and saw a ton of council meetings and they're a is always a theatrical moment in almost every council meeting you go to, um, even if it's incredibly subtle. And there's usually a moment where someone who clearly just needs to maybe speak um, has a chance to speak. And sometimes it's, 
you know, there's a pathos to it that's intense that we would never want to exploit. And other times it's like, wow, this guy who dumped the trash, he's a pretty interesting figure. You know, like he, he was someone who had a lot of feelings about like dog poop. And um, there are other meetings that I saw online where it was like, he really gave a whole testimony about that. And so that's not something that we normally spend tons of time talking about, maybe unless we're dog owners, um, but it actually had a, had a voice in the council. And because he had established himself as being a citizen worth hearing, like he asserted himself as that, when he had a point to make that did affect other people, um, it, it felt like that was really taken seriously, whether or not council members wanted to. So I think there's a kind of figure in urban life um, that to me is always fascinating that I feel like I very much is very resonant for me just as a person. Um, That's why I love living in cities. And it's, it felt like this was a new iteration of that moment and that kind of figure for me. So the actual transcripts themselves that were used in the piece and given to the participants, the audience, they were verbatim, right? From actual city council meetings. Yeah. How did you go through that process of streamlining each story because I imagine there were some very serious, you know, concerns and issues that people wanted to raise at these meetings. So how did you, how did you select the appropriate topics and then thread them into a script, into an experience, into a performance? Um, so in terms of the meeting that, so the whole thing is in two parts. So there's a meeting, then there's an intermission um, and then in the second half, there's what we call local ending. And the local ending, basically, that is a discrete piece that we make in that particular place. So the meeting itself doesn't change. The way that we, how, the, the way we decided what to do where was that we, we were very influenced by the sort of ethnographic study that applied um, Goffman's theories about performance in everyday life to a city council meeting that was a dramaturgical and basically kind of broke down. So city council meetings work in a particular way, even though city council meetings all over the country are very different, like the way they're structured, you know, they're sort of like Robert's rules or whatever that, that, but basically they start because they want everyone to feel good in the beginning. So they start with this sort of feel good, we do like nice inclusive things in the very beginning because we want people who who show up to feel good about their government, right? So we give awards, we do like fun stuff. And then it gets really boring because they actually don't want people there, right? So then it gets into like this really boring section where they've already decided everything and it's just like really boring and there's a lot of votes, but there's no debate, whatever. Because what they're trying to do is like clear everybody out of the room <laughs> with the boring stuff. Okay. And then, then, and then it starts to get interesting and they're hoping when it gets interesting where they have to debate, they have to listen to people, things aren't decided yet, all of that, that there's as few people as possible in the audience. <laughs> so, so what happens is it starts very bureaucratically controlled, right? Where they're pretty much running the shots. And then as the meeting goes, the voices of the audience have more and more presence basically. And so it's structured so that we, we make sure by the time people really can take over the meeting, there's not very many of them left. So this was a very interesting structure in terms for us, in terms of thinking about participation. So we just thought about, we had, we had 
chosen these transcripts that we thought were really interesting, right? And so we 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 use that as a model. So we started with Bismarck, where there was like literally three people in the audience, and it was like super boring, very but very quaint. There was like humor. Um, you know, there was where we could kind of just set up the rules of the piece for people. It could be light and bubbly, <laughs> sort of entertaining, but also boring. Um, and also, you know, there was a thing kind of following this, we we thought about the council table very strategically, which is that we we wanted the counselors to have an arc. So if you chose to be a counselor, you'd have this arc and you'd go from just following that same structure being like, okay, I'm going to sit here and I don't have a script and this is really boring and I just have to listen, right? To as it moved forward, you know, you were given all this special information and like it got more heated that each, each person had a staffer, right? And so there was an arc for the council table to kind of so in the beginning, we wanted the, the good thing about the boring part is that we didn't have to give them much, right? We're just like plunk them down, <laughs> sit there. You have no script that you're just told like when your name is called, just say yes, you voted for it already, right? So it had this like boring, bland, like no information kind of zone because that would let us get to like more heightens, more back and forth. So we would end up with Pete Colt. So it's basically that's kind of the rough structure that we had that was very interesting. And so, I mean, it was really it was actually really fun part of the process to figure out, you know, what went where. And I think by the time like the first time we ever did it, we gave everybody the whole script and it was just kind of terrible because they were just like looking at the script and, you know, going ahead. So um, once we decided our our designer, his name's Jim Finley, who's awesome, was like after that first, he's like, yeah, you got to get rid of those scripts. And we were like, oh, OK. And then it became really like a game. It was really fun to figure out how to um, enliven the structure. And um, but that's base. I would say that's the basic structure that we followed and then the only the only thing i might add is that the so then we had that we would clear the room with pete colt so that we the one place where he had a prepared actor was someone playing pete colt who was kind of cast to type local in each city where we went to they would actually dump a bag of trash they were not on a script so we rehearsed them everyone else was an audience member um and then after intermission we'd come back and we had made a local ending with adversaries around some particular local issue and it was not meant to solve that issue's problems, or even to agree. It was just saying, can you cooperate on making a creative work with us? Um, and that varied wildly city to city, but it was a chance for everybody in that audience to see their own city reflected. Whereas before that, they had seen this kind of like, Ur city, or we called it the city we make together. Um, that's the name of the book, uh, you know, so um, that that was, we wanted you to see a kind of, not generic, but sort of like overarching city model and then see your own town and maybe ask some questions of yourself about that. Yeah. And, so, and I'll just say in some places, like when we were in San Francisco, there was a section of that meeting that was from Oakland or Tempe or Houston. Like, so that audience would recognize its city, but um, like in New York, for example, or in Keene, that wasn't, their, their particular city was only reflected in the ending. We will come back to the local ending section in a moment because I've got some very specific questions about those local endings. 
Whilst we're still discussing the making of the piece, the way in which it was set out, and just to break it down a little bit more, I'd really love to know how you found it as a writer and how difficult was it to not make scenarios or certain characters' topics antagonistic or ignorant, empathetic, sympathetic towards other characters and topics like... And did it ever come across completely different when somebody was performing it, like to how you originally intended it to sound? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it was. It was difficult. And I feel like it um, it walked a line on purpose and that sometimes it would cross over into one place or another. Um, you know, this, the piece starts really with an orientation video. And that video was kind of modeled a bit after what you see when you do jury duty in the U.S., um, which is like poor production values, but usually someone famous narrates like, you know, like Ed Bradley, who was this like, you know, um, I'm an on screen of journalism would narrate, but then you'd see this terrible video of like people being drowned as witches while extolling the virtues of democracy. And we kind of had like some version of that humor, but also we would have like local officials or activists or students in each city record the orientation video. And in that video, you get to make a choice. Do you wanna be a council member, a, a speaker who gets a piece of testimony, a supporter who doesn't speak, but gets instructions like get up, answer your phone, leave, um, or do you just wanna be a bystander? Um, and, you know, we chose those words fairly carefully so that they would each be provocative in a way, right? Like bystander is a provocative term because uh, there's innocent bystander and then there's the bystander who let something happen. Um, and I feel like there are a lot of stories in the US right now about um, cities where people just didn't show up and so, or showed up and didn't pay attention and something radical happened in their towns for better or for worse. Um, the place where I feel like the piece was provocative in different ways at different moments had to do with like, if you were a speaker um, or a council member, you would not necessarily get instruction on the demographics of the person whose words you were speaking. What we made really clear, uh, I think to our credit was you are speaking the words of someone who actually gave this testimony or was on this council at the at a real city council meeting. So that usually meant that people took seriously what they were saying and did not necessarily speak to stereotypes. And some really beautiful things happened in those moments most of the time, right? Like you get someone whose testimony says, I don't want, you know, you just pick it up and all of a sudden you're reading it to an audience. And it says, I do not want to be classified as a bad black child from the projects, which came from uh, San Antonio, where I saw this very powerful government meeting where dozens of uh, high school students gave testimony to the, to the city council about how their neighborhood was being left behind. And it seemed to have an impact. And, you know, if you in New York and you get a bearded white guy in his 30s who gives that testimony, most of the time they would choose to treat it with a lot of respect and not play a role. Occasionally, we would get um, people who wanted to play the stereotype of what they thought someone who was going to be classified as a bad black child from the projects would do. And that was pretty difficult. And we so that was one place in which the piece could kind of veer a little bit. Um, usually those moments didn't last too long. Uh, and the other thing that would sometimes happen was I think Mallory did a really brilliant job of sort of uh, effectively policing the potential for hamminess that the council members would sometimes take on because they would get behind that council table. And literally when we talked to people afterward, they'd be like, yeah, I sat down and I was like, I feel the power. And so they'd start to want to act, especially as the piece went on and things got more dramatic. 
Um, and so we a couple times had to like remove a council member. <laughs> and so Mallet worked out this way, uh, kind of on the fly in different performances to just tell a staffer. So we had these staffers who were local, who we worked with for several weeks. And she would be like, just go tell them to just speak the words, right? And gradually we worked that into our, um, our orientation of the council members. So on one hand, if someone was really shy, but they had gotten brave and taken that role on, a staffer would lean over and be like, you're doing great, just keep speaking into the microphone or you're doing awesome, you know, really. And as an audience member, you just watch a staffer whisper at a council member and it felt like something official and meaningful was going on. Um, and then occasionally too, someone would, if someone was really hamming it up, we had a guy in Houston who tried to play the role of George Bush, basically you want to do a George Bush impression on the council table. And it just drained all of the potential impact of the piece. And so his staffer was like, please just say the word, speak a little faster, thank you. And it, it, it wasn't mean, but it definitely was sort of taskmastery. So I feel like over the several times that we got to do the piece, there's a sense of like calibrating what each audience member needs. Cause we were really making like four pieces, right? They were making the piece for the bystanders who would watch everybody in their roles and not know what was going on, except that there was this council meeting happening around them. The speakers and supporters and bystanders watched the council table who were all getting separate instructions. And then the council was sitting there watching this show happen, you know, audience members standing up and sitting down, people answering their phone and walking out the door, um, people giving testimony that felt, you know, made them feel implicated. So all those things were also part of the dramaturgy and direction. And the last thing I'll say is that I think that often just kept people feeling like they had a task to do, like their job was to get this, this meeting done which is actually how a lot of elected officials feel. You know, they don't always know what's going on. They have a scenario and a set of rules and an agenda, but like stuff goes off the rails all the time and they have to turn to a staffer and be like, am I supposed to say this, you know? And that happens at every level of government in the US. Um, so I think there, there was a, both a looseness and a, 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 a very clear frame around the action that we were able to set up. What we... I think what was interesting for me is that we had like this group of staffers that we trained, some of whom were, I mean, not very many in the full scheme were ever really performers. They were more just like people who wanted to be engaged in the process and wanted to think about the ideas. And because we had a very short way of like rehearsing them that involved a lot of like explaining the theoretical underpinnings of the whole piece. So they really understood it, that they could kind of guide, guide the experience. I mean, I think of more like, I mean, I think what became interesting is that what we realized is that we're setting up a rule-based performance, right? And and whenever people get into a rule-based performance, like it's kind of what the first thing that's overwhelming is that people just instinctually want to know what the rules are and then they want to follow the rules. Like that's, that was a huge lesson. Like we actually had to do things to remind people that it just, it wasn't a play, you know, because they just, well, you know, they wanted to follow, but also there's a, but the other thing that happens is there's a group in there once they realize it's a rules-based system, they want to push against that, right? They want to push against that. And I think that was a hard thing to accept because what we were able to do is like something would go wrong and then we would come up with a way that that could be mitigated. And when I say wrong, it's just like when somebody plays out a real stereotype. And the craziest thing was not there was never the same problem ever happened twice. So we'd come up with a solution and we'd never have that problem again, you know, but what it did do was make the staffers really hyper aware of just exactly what, 
the environment we wanted to instill. But at a certain point, like I think, you know, you have to accept that if you set up this rule-based performance that there, you can't, you know, you can't police it. And so what happens is when someone plays out a stereotype, what you hope is that people, because of the arena, will realize that's what's going on and they will reflect on it, right? And and you will, I mean, when we had it, we had it in one performance really, you know, overtly. And I think like the audience was made very, they were very uncomfortable. A lot of the people who were conscious of what was going on were very uncomfortable. And so they were able to see their community in a very precise way. And so I think that we did what we could to set rules in place so that people were respectful. But to a certain extent, there's a kind of person like the guy who wants to be George Bush or whatever, right? Who that's the kind of behavior that is going to come up for that kind of person. And so what you have to do is you have to like have rules to mitigate it, but you also have to realize like, oh, that's who we are in this room when we perform, you know? So it's also a little bit about, so I guess for me, the realism is like when we actually do have to actually look at who we are, you know what I mean? And we are both the person who just wants to do it right. And, you know, and we are the person who wants to, push against right and disrupt and act out like that's also part you know that's also part of it and so i think that's hard as an artist because you you want to protect people right you know you want to make your you want to make like this like i mean i don't i never want to make anything safe but but you know what i mean when you're when you're asking people to kind of put themselves out there <clears throat> you're not in to hurt anybody. Right. And so, so you have to kind of deal with that. So I think like, that's maybe how I would like reframe realism is just to like the beauty of pe people being respectful, the beauty of people really honoring the thing, but also the starkness of somebody, what it looks like in their mind, the stereotype that they're so removed from knowing anybody like that, like they have no, so that's what they're going to perform. And so that's really where mm, it's like, but, but often in those moments, you know, people would talk to us after and be like, wow, that was not, that was so not cool. Right. You know what I mean? Like people really were able, and we weren't going to intercede. You know what I mean? I think that that was like, we were going to make enough rules, but like once the meeting got rolling, like we, it was going to proceed in the way that it was going to proceed, you know? And that was like a, a really, it's something, you know, from, you know, doing a representational piece of theater because like, you know, the audience is there and, but, but the expectation I think for this audience was, I think we could have interceded, you know what I mean? I don't think they, they knew. Right. But we didn't, you know? And so then it was often instead of interceding, it was about, adding to the frame so that what Mallory's talking about where it's like can you see that this is your community doing this right now that's the the the, the reality if not the realism I want to add one other thing which is that we made a decision pretty early not to make it a kind of cathartic theater experience in the way that a lot of plays are set up because people you know early in development would say well I want to be able to tell my story to an imagined city council and kind of intuitively and then we backed it up with why we would say, mm, I think this is more about recognizing what happens at the council meeting and how you do participate so that you can go to a council meeting and participate differently if you want. 
So you, we want you to speak your mind at an actual government meeting in a way that's more effective, like Pete Colt did, right? Like if he had dressed differently, if he had spoken differently, he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have gotten people's attention. So I think that's also part of it for us was like not making a realistic theater moment, but actually to say like, next time you go to a council meeting, examine this frame. And I think that the book provides a brilliant framework for holding and producing a a democratic space or gives an example of a democratic space, which is really exciting. And the idea that for audience members and for the general public, the community itself, as a way inside democratic spaces and council meetings, you, you really do such a great job of demonstrating that actually there is a reminding people actually that there is a middle ground there is a common ground that we all exist on and that is the the day-to-day -day that we live and the same issues that affect me affect you and actually it's all of our duty and responsibility to not only have an opinion about these things but also find a a a solution did you have any like really polarizing kind of experiences while she were at these city council meetings, either really far left, really far right. How how was that experience? Yeah, I mean, I'm just one thing that comes to mind, and it's in the book, um, just as an anecdote, is so we worked in Houston in um, this incredible space called Project Row Houses um, that's been around since the 80s. And um, it was our first uh, space outside of New York. They were one of our first commissioning partners with an organization there called Diverse Works. And I had worked there before, so and I knew um, a bit about the place, but I think we were a little bit, we wanted to be really careful that we made the piece we wanted to make, but also that this was a city, it wasn't like we wanted to, we made a commitment to ourselves not to parachute in to do community engagement with a place that was already very engaged with itself, both artistically and politically. Project Row Houses is in the historic Black neighborhood of Houston. Um, it was started by an artist named Rick Lowe. It is its own kind of 40-year and running social practice project that has resulted in homes that are affordable for people, um, tenant advocacy, uh, education programs for kids and adults. Like, it's an amazing, amazing space that also includes, you know, radical and transformative artistic experience. So it wasn't like we were going to go in there and say, like, here's our point of view. Will you please adopt it? It was like we wanted to really be there with them and ask questions together. And I think I, I certainly, and I think Mallory and I talked about this feeling a bit nervous going in. Um, and we were lucky to have the support to spend a lot of time, like 15 weeks over the course of a couple of years. Um, and, uh, and we visited church services and we went to middle schools and talked to a lot of different people who worked in council and outside of council. And, the rewarding thing or the success story of that is like at the end of one of our performances, um, one of the people who was from that neighborhood just said, you reframed what we already do as activists, but as art. And that felt really powerful. So it wasn't around a particular issue. I don't think um, we, I think that our politics is probably in the piece more than, you know, there's not a reality that we're necessarily seeking. I think in terms of your question, what's really interesting to me just in like in the local government space is on one hand, people have these tasks to get through. So their political beliefs sometimes have to take a back seat. Um, and on the other hand, sometimes these tasks reveal fairly intense political views, like 
Right now in Michigan, there is a town that banned funding for its library because the library refused to uh, take shel- take off their shelves LGBTQ-friendly kids' books. So that's a local government acting on pretty extreme politics. Um, and then other local governments in the last few years have voted to try and you know, defund or uh, abolish the police. They've tried. They haven't been successful. Um, and that was a response to uprisings that were happening. So... I guess just like it's an open question to me how much our politics writ large play into our decisions within a community. And I don't know that there's an answer about how to proceed necessarily, um, but that's just like the first things that come into mind. Yeah, I also just, I just want to say that I think we were definitely aware that there was an expectation of the audience that they were going to come into a space and at a certain point, like their political perspective would be at play. And so I think in a way (laughs) we were like, again, going back to like the content versus the structure, right? We were more like, that was just something that we, I think we were, we're dealing with. So we were kind of a sneaky and evasive and in a way to to be like there's something else that matters in this room other than just like whether you're a democrat or a republican like like actually when you get down to it like so so the fact that there wasn't like a hot button issue you know um that the issue more was like oh about me reflecting in this thing and how comfortable i feel or uncomfortable am i bored why am i bored you know that was really like what the piece was asking it wasn't like it wasn't kind of re-engaging with this trope of like this is an issue you know where do you stand kind of thing and because people had to play all sorts of people they were reading perspectives from a lot of different people right it was always going to be mismatched anyways so um yeah i'll just say that in the book where you explain the roles and actions and how you went about distributing parts to certain people you do share a really really lovely example um, about how you used comedic prompts as a device to make people feel at ease and break down those potential moments of nervousness or trepidation the example that i loved was um you writing in the script, giving the character the stage directions um, of just standing and nodding several times before the piece could actually move on. And and actually, that that's such a really lovely device to put in there to, to, to loosen people's attitudes and, and people's anxieties potentially about taking part in something that they have no experience of. Let's talk about the local endings. So how were they formulated and how did they run? How did you go about providing these communities with these specific local endings for each different show? Well, we we would just agree not to try to be experts about another city. So that was a starting point. And so that meant that we had to go to a meeting, a local government meeting in each city and basically say, this is what we saw. These are our observations. No matter what it was, we had to find the theater and the possible kind of local ending within that. So that also put us at at risk in a good way. You know, that like we went to Tempe, Arizona, and there was a meeting about ficus trees, and it was really boring. And um, we were like, oh, no, we left the meeting being like, maybe we should go see another meeting. Maybe we should break our own rule, you know. Um, But when we drilled down, what we realized was that like, you know, 
the the meeting started with the city saying these ficus trees don't really belong in the desert. They lie in the downtown main drag. Um, and they cost us about $10,000 per tree, you know, over the course of five years. And there's hundreds of them, but, and then a whole, and then there were some engineers and they gave a presentation about this other kind of tree that belongs in the desert, but cost less, looks similar, but the leaves do fall off in winter. And then like 50 people got up and were like, yeah, but we like the ficus. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter that we're spending millions of dollars. This is the brand of downtown. Someone from the tourism board was like, uh-uh, we can't do that. And what we realized also was that a lot of unhoused young people hung out under the ficus trees. Um, and so we started saying, oh, the ficus trees are a bit of a coverage for this other issue that no one knows what to do with. Like unhoused people in the Phoenix metro area is quite uh, an issue. And each municipality, there are several that are kind of packed together, deals with it differently. And Tempe didn't want to have to deal with the way that it deals with unhoused people, which was actually a bit more liberal than other cities in the area. So that became, you know, the, the, the interesting thing for us to pursue. So we worked with a woman who had been unhoused and then had just gotten housing. Um, and then we worked, we worked with the head of the tourism board who were both very willing participants. We didn't ask them to try to solve homelessness, but we did ask them to talk about what they wanted the city to be and what they wanted their lives to be. So, um, you know, we spent a lot of time talking to different people who were living on the street. We talked to city officials. We talked to the guys who take care of the trees um, and uh, just tried to bring as many perspectives as possible. So when you came back from that intermission, there was the forest of small ficus trees on the stage. There were video monitors playing conversations we had had with each of the main participants. And then there was a woman who did services for unhoused people to the city who was live, who was kind of a moderator. And interesting because she came from a faith-based perspective. She was very religious and really believed in that way, that sense of like doing good for people, no questions asked. And the questions that she actually surfaced in the piece were some of the most provocative, ironically, like from the most official position. But that all just grew out of us being in lots of conversations, us having time to play. You know, um, I want to say the last thing I'll say too is like, my provocation to the field of sort of socially engaged theater making is that we often have three weeks and $5,000 and a goal of like addressing the homelessness issue. And we had, because of some very, very generous partnerships with venues and other institutions, we had a couple of years and several rounds of conversations to just ask questions. Um, and so for us, I think the long engagement really made the piece um, thrive and the lack of a uh, a social goal except to kind of elevate the humanity of the people in the room for better or worse um was really the thing for us but having that long time that's just what i feel like the field craves is multi-year engagements um that allow for really free conversation because we would go meet with our heather the woman who had been on the street um and then have long conversations about how ethically we should deal with the power dynamic you know we would write something for Nancy, the woman who ran the tourism board, and she would come back with comments and we'd have more long conversations with that. So it wasn't a neat and tidy process at all. Um, and I guess that's the last thing is just like we, I feel like the book offers an approach or a set of tools, like you said, but not a methodology or a timeline. The more yeah, time, the better, I'll just I think. add one thing that's sort of just overarching, like a decision that we made is that because we understood the expectation that we were talking about before that this was going to impinge on people's po politics right and because aaron and i are like we're 
progressive lefties. <laughs> I mean, like there's no, right. What we, we understood the expectation of the audience and we thought, okay, there's, when we talk about what the ending is going to be, there is this, there's gotta be this expectation that whatever you saw, Aaron and I were going to be like, reveal which side we came down on. Right. And we were like, that is so boring. <laughs> like, we're just like, oh, so what we, we basically just decided is that, is that how would, how would art, right. Deal with the same tensions that are appeared in the meeting. Like that's basically like, how would we aesthetically just, if we could think purely aesthetically, how would we deal with those same tensions? And so that was really like what we shifted towards that really helped us rich. And then Aaron was like, what if we just like got people on different sides of an issue to make something together, not to solve the problem or talk about the issue or anything. I mean, like in Tempe, we did, I mean, we, we did bring up ficus trees, but it wasn't, it wasn't to reveal who was right or who was wrong. It was like, it was beautiful. You know, we made this installation. We, the, the, the aesthetics was really like the thing where we wanted to kind of invite people into the multi-perspectives around something. Um, and, and I think, um, so that, that's just a, a big way to kind of frame the particulars that Aaron was talking about. Honestly, this, conversation has has made my day it's really made my day it's so wonderful to be in a position where I can sit and listen and question work like this and and I just want to say a massive massive thank you for your time because this project must have took so 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 much of your life um, putting this piece together and working with the audiences and the communities that you worked with. And and I can really, really appreciate that because I know what it feels like to work on something for so long and have so many other people involved with it. And then on top of that, you've also got an audience there as well. Uh, and I, ju I just think it's, it's brilliant. And, and the fact that you've then gone and put this together into this brilliant book for people to learn about not only the project itself, but how they could go about creating and playing with some of these conventions. It, it's superb. It really, really is. Thank you. And it's a, it's a really priceless resource for anybody who works in our field of, of theatre, applied theatre. Who, who, who is this book for from your point of view? Well, we're starting to build a curriculum with it. Um, that is, you know, one of the weird discoveries that we made relatively unintentionally was that like you put an eighth grader, like a 12 year old in the mayor's chair and they understand something about these structures that Mallory's talking about really well. And so I've been teaching a freshman seminar for first year students at Princeton, where we kind of replicate a lot of our process. We do a lot of the same readings. Then we go visit meetings in nearby communities. And then we make a short performance based on those transcripts. And then last year was the first year we were able to do it in person and the students came up with their own local ending that involved like because i had a very diverse group of people from who all came with like several different home languages and so we made the local ending in like six different languages it just lasted five or six minutes that was like extra credit like i wasn't expecting that um but the goal is to then translate that to high school and middle school students and build it out um so it's for educators but it's also for um i think people who want to practice trying some of these approaches. Um, there's a way that I do interviews that I learned from an ethnographer 
that kind of makes me responsible to someone else um, who's a subject. Um, and those are some of the ones off the top of my head. Mallory, what about you? Just to kind of zoom out a little bit, right? Uh, and to also, you know, we do talk a lot about participatory theater and our feelings about it and just, um, and how often, like, it makes us not want to be there. Y you know what I mean? <laughs> so also for people, because I feel like, so going in the other direction, you know, for artists who are like all in on the immersive, whatever, that is, it, it like to me, it, it's also for them, it's for that group too, to kind of like reconsider their, their, their skill set, right? And to actually, because I feel like a lot of immersive theater is like all in on the theater, but like for the average person who has difficulty even going to the theater, like it's a lot, right? And it, it <laughs> because the, because the interrelation, you just can't like, the interrelationship and the politics of representation, right, is is exacerbated when you get into those immersive situations, right? And so I guess on the other side, it's also about like for theater artists to like really examine what they're doing in a more structural political arena, I guess, you know. Mallory, what an incredible and brave thing to say. Like, oh, I feel so inspired by that, especially as applied artists to 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 not be confined to not just settle with this is what we do to to really understand that actually we have an artistic contribution to the wider community that our our art and our way of working might be the missing piece when things get all tangled up and we don't know what to do or we don't know how to settle certain things. And I always go back to the the commission model and, and thinking about, you know, communities working with professional architects to design uh, a park or to design a local school and young people being involved in that process and, and actually it being applied facilitators that help create that democratic space where people are able to contribute yeah yeah thank you Mallory that was a wow what a provocation can I add one just like brief uh, like addition to that which I think it takes us back to your starting questions around like you know the philosophies of democracy and the idea of everyone being equally suited to lead and I think our provocation to ourselves was like everybody is equally suited to understand philosophy, to understand power and to participate politically in making an aesthetic work. So I think that like, if we can hold ourselves to that as artists, um, and I think that's what the book is kind of asking, you know, I don't, I'm sure we weren't successful some of the time, but like, that's what I think we would love to do, you know, like Paulo Freire and um, Bawaller hovering around kind of with those, with those ideals for years and years and years. But I think that's maybe what we tried to bring to bear on the project. What a perfect final thought, Aaron. <laughs> I've been playing. I was rehearsing that before. I can yeah, tell. I was rehearsing I can tell it. You, you planned that. With my that cat. Right here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and with that, I'd just like to say a massive thank you to you both for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. The city we make together City Council Meetings Primer for Participation by Aaron Landsman and Marity Catlett is available on Amazon, Google Books, Kindle. Please make sure that you do check it out. I will definitely include a link 
to all of those uh, platforms that I've just discussed. So please have a look in the description to get your copy now. Thank you both so much. Um, and I can't wait to hopefully speak to you again in the future. Thank you. Thanks so much. Sam. Thank you so much. Pleasure to meet you.